Hello, and thank you for joining the third episode of Pipettes and Politics. I'm Ben Korb, the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, and as always, I'm joined by Andre Porter. Hey, how you doing? And Daniel Pham. Hey, everyone. I want to thank you for listening and for coming back and for downloading this podcast. Today, we're going to talk about a few things. Uh, we're going to open up talking about just kind of what's been happening over the past couple weeks since we last recorded. In our second segment, we're going to go a little bit of a deeper dive in terms of what Congress needs to do before the end of this calendar year, which is rapidly approaching. And to close it out, we're going to talk a little bit about what some of our favorite stories were from 2017. So um, first, I wanted to talk 21st Century Cures. 21st Century Cures was this massive bipartisan legislation that was pushed through Congress around this time last year before the end of previous Congress billed to be really like the biomedical research bill of all biomedical research bills. And here we are a year later, and Dr. Francis Collins, the director of the NIH, as well as the leaders from FDA, maybe CDC, I'm not sure. No, just FDA. Just FDA. Um, testified before both the House and the Senate give, to give an update on where things are. Thankfully, um, Andre has those covered and was at those hearings. And so, Andre, what did you hear? What was discussed during this? As you mentioned, it was passed last year, and this was kind of a checkup hearing for both the House and Senate health committees. Generally, it was it was kind of a pat us, ourselves on the back. This was this bipartisan effort that we pushed forward. It, Of course, as you mentioned, the bill was this big biomedical research push. Um, it provided legislation that supported or increased support for precision medicine for the brain initiative, for the cancer moonshot, and trying to reduce some regulatory burdens. Most of the discussions that went on were just kind of what went on how are things at the NIH? How are things at the FDA? Scott uh, Gottlieb, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, is a commissioner for the FDA. He provided the testimony, and as you mentioned, Francis Collins, the director of NIH, provided the testimony in the background for NIH efforts. I wouldn't say it was that interesting. It was kind of a, hey, we did a good job type of thing. Um, what, to me, stood out. So earlier in the year, we covered it on the blog. I think we mentioned it briefly before uh, in the last episode. Uh, the NIH put out the grant support index and was was controversial to say the least and kind of it, it was perceived to go along the lines of the career level of the researchers so some of the younger researchers seemed to like the grant support index older researchers seemed to and just as a reminder, sorry to cut you off, but the grant support index was a scoring system that was to be established by the NIH, which scored you as an individual researcher based on the grants or the number of grants or the type of grants that you had. Right. And once you reached a certain number, you essentially were kind of locked out of the pool for, for future funding or for another grant or whatever in order to try to democratize and spread out the money so that maybe those senior investigators that have gotten a lot of pieces, a lot of grants, wouldn't be eating all of the grants so that maybe younger investigators would have a chance as well. Right. And to be fair, it didn't completely lock you up because director or institutes at each director institutes rather had the discretion to decide if you could still receive funding and you had to justify why you could apply for another grant and be able to support that grant. Right. And you can read more about this in our on our blog, and we'll have a link to that on here. I don't want to get too deep into right, it, but right, what right. did the hearing talk about this? So Francis Collins... The, the question of support, of support for the next generation of researchers came up. Francis Collins, of course, highlighted their rejiggered grant support index, which is now the next generation of research initiative. When they first premiered it, they pulled a lot of that language that was kind of prescriptive of taking the money from the rich, so to speak, and giving it to the poor with a slight Robin Hood analogy. 
in this hearing, however, at the House hearing at least, um, Francis Collins kind of restated some of those those uh, points and mentioned that if we're going to support this next generation of researchers, we have to not fund or not be as generous with funding, I think was the exact quote, um, with our research and start to not fund labs that have five, six um, R1s or equivalent grants and spread that out to the, the, or use that money to support mid-career and early career investigators. To me, that was a pivot, depending on if you ever heard Francis Collins speak, that he's very particular about his words. He's very good at crafting his message. And so the fact that he's using that, uh, I think, was very indicative of where the NGRI is maybe feeding back from the, or or reaching back to the GSI or evolving to kind of touch the points that the GSI was really focusing on. And, you know, one of the things that we've seen, um, Mike Lauer, who is the director of extramural research at the NIH, talk a lot about, uh, and we've seen this for a year, several years now, um, the efficiency of a researcher, where you know, there are models that show after you've received a five or your sixth R01 grant, how you are as a researcher, your productivity as a researcher, which arguably is measured tends to be measured by the papers that you publish. Right. But there are questions about productivity. And so we will also try, um, on the link to this podcast, we'll have a link to some of those articles so you can see that as well. Um, do we see anything major changing, or was this really just a lot of lip service and we still don't have a lot of details yet? A lot of lip service. We The NGRI is notoriously vague in how it's, it's being handled. This week is the Council for the Director, which I'll be attending So it's this Thursday and Friday. They, there are plans there is an actual session on the second day covering NGRI, so I hope to see some some developments on where they're going and see if uh, Dr. Collins's testimony is kind of mirroring some of the changes. And maybe uh, for our next podcast, or which isn't going to be until after the new year, but maybe we'll be able to talk a little right. bit, get a little bit into a deeper dive about when G, what NGRI is. And we can um, on it'll be I'll do an update on the policy blog. So if you follow follow the policy blog, you'll see. Uh, kind of a debrief of what happened during and the meeting. link to that policy blog is as always <laughs> policy.asbnb.org you can sign up so that you get an email every time we publish a new article i highly recommend that i want to do just quickly move on to a couple of other things before we go to our next segment so last week uh actually not last week two weeks ago congress passed a continuing resolution which kept the government funded from december 4th until december 22nd which is next friday in order to avoid a government shutdown we are quickly approaching that deadline. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means and what that impact is in our next segment. But I did want to mention, obviously, if you're listening to this now, government didn't shut down, kept things going for another couple of weeks, and it looks like there's another couple of weeks of work. Um, quickly, also on the tax, uh, the graduate student tax, the conferees, both House and Senate conferees, have been named. Both the House and Senate voted to go forward to conference. Those folks are probably meeting right now as we're recording this podcast. Um, I want to mention just a couple of things. One, um, ASBNB put out an alert to our members saying, write to your member of Congress, tell them to sign on to a letter um, opposing the graduate student tax that was sent to conferees. I want to uh, clap for ASBNB members. Uh, we got over 1,000 members of ASBNB sent letters to their members of Congress. Um, 3,000, more than 3,000 letters were generated to Congress covering 369 individual members of Congress saying, um, don't go forward with the graduate student tax in the whatever the conference bill that comes out. Um, Pete Sessions' letter had 31 Republicans sign on to it, which is a pretty significant amount. 
uh, Pete Sessions is a Republican from Texas. And Dan Lipinski, a Democrat from Illinois, from Chicago, um, he had a complimentary effort as well. And there were 42 signers. Most of those were Democrats. So almost 100 members of Congress wrote to the conferees and said, graduate student tax is a bad idea. Daniel, is there anything you wanted to add to kind of what's happening in that space? Yeah, so there were reports last week that eight students and one supporter were arrested protesting the tax bill in front of uh, Speaker Paul Ryan's office to make sure that the tax bill that the tax bill doesn't include the grad student waiver repeal. So that was really crazy and really interesting to see, you know, grad students who normally aren't extremely vocal in advocacy and politics to do something of this nature. And that really shows what this tax bill is doing to people and showing that the Republicans are really not sharing what's happening in the bill with the people that are being affected by it. Um, so I think also students are being beginning to realize the importance of advocacy on their own behalf because universities also have been impacted by this bill. And I think their priorities are looking to make sure that the endowment tax isn't going to be on the bill. So it's cool to see graduate students being able to take it upon themselves to you know, sign on to our, our letters um, and make calls and do a lot of these advocacy efforts. So kudos to everyone. Yeah, and we're, and we're watching this legislation, and hopefully the end result is uh, that this tax bill doesn't get passed because of the deficit and those issues, but also that at least whatever comes out of conference will not have this graduate student tax information. It'd be great to be able to prove to everybody that advocacy works. So um, thank you. Uh, we're going to take a little break here, take a breather, drink a little bit of water. Our next session, we're going to be talking about what Congress needs to do before the end of the calendar year. Once again, you are listening to Pipettes and Politics. The ASBMB Public Outreach Committee is proud to offer the Art of Science Communication, an online course available for all scientists and STEM professionals. If you are interested in getting instruction on how to effectively present your science to a non-expert audience, all from the comfort of your home or lab, then this is the course for you. During the course, you'll learn to craft an exciting message, generate interest in your topic, engage your audience, effectively use nonverbal communication, and deliver an effective presentation. The course is eight weeks long and costs $25 for ASBMB members. Applications for the winter session will be accepted starting January 2, 2018. For more information, contact us at outreach at ASBMB.org. Hello there. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. You've got Ben Korb. And Andre. I'm Daniel. Uh, thank you again for sticking around. So we wanted to talk a little bit, do a little bit of a deeper dive in terms of what's ahead for Congress. And so we're going to talk about three pieces. One, the tax reform bill that is in conference right now. Um, can't go into a deep dive about what's in it, but we can talk about what the process is. So the goal, the President, President Trump has requested to see the bill and to have the bill on his desk before Christmas. It seems as though congressional leadership would like to meet that goal. It, in order to do that, there are you know 10 days essentially and two weekends in the middle of that um, 
to get a bill to the president's desk before Christmas. So, and there's a lot of work that needs to get done, and, and we're seeing that happen now. So, um, the conference will probably come out with a bill. I'm thinking it might be this week. So, if it comes out after we publish this, I apologize for not covering it. We'll be watching it. We'll be covering it on the blog for the issues that we care about. But that's just something we want you all to be aware of. The heavy lifting and the action for that is going to be next week. That's when this is going to happen, if it's going to happen. And it's entirely possible that, lo and behold, the piece of legislation isn't good enough or has enough things that are broken in it that they're not going to be able to meet that Christmas deadline. So there is, however, Daniel, I know you want to bring this up. There is a push to get it done before Christmas and before the new year, and why is that? Well, if you were not living under a rock yesterday, um, Alabama just voted for Doug Jones to be the next senator, and he'll be seated in January. So that really puts the pressure on Republicans to finish this bill by Christmas. Otherwise, that margin of error they have in the Senate is just one senator. Yeah, well, it's two senators. Oh, yes, so it's currently, have, yes. it, it'll be, currently the Senate is 52-48 Republican. Yeah. Um, after uh, Senator-elect Jones is seated, it'll be 49-51. Um, obviously, the Republicans have the tie-breaking vote with the vice president. So, um, But it certainly makes it... it the it's the the path for passage is narrow as it is, and it becomes uh, you know narrower by a third um, after January. So they're going to be looking to get that done. Um, that's all we're going to go into with regards to the tax reform. We really don't know what's coming out of the conference, but we're watching and we're anxious, and we'll let you know as soon as we know. Um, let's talk the continuing resolution. So, as we mentioned earlier on December fourth, we passed a a clean CR which is essentially there were no policy riders attached to it. It was just a piece of legislation that said, keep the government funded as it has been funded until December the 22nd, which is uh, this coming Friday, a week from today. Um, so Congress next week has to come up with either a plan to, f an omnibus plan to spend, to fund the government for the rest of the fiscal year, which seems unlikely because we haven't seen that, or another continuing resolution to kick the can for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, three months, who knows, or um, what has become kind of a normal practice around here, which is called a cromnibus, a CR omnibus, which mm -hmm. would be an omnibus package for some parts of the government and a continuing resolution for others. So um, I'm going to just mention a couple of the things that I've seen in passing in order to get the CR done. First of all, Democrats are starting to say that they don't want to support a continuing resolution without some policy fixes, without perhaps a fix to DACA, the uh, Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals pro Policy, which President Trump eliminated, um, without spending for uh, community health programs, um, for the S-CHIP, which is child uh, health, the ch Children's Health Insurance Program, without disaster relief funding. These are things that Democrats may be willing to threaten to shut down the government over if these are pieces that aren't included in the continuing resolution. On the Republican side, they want defense spending, and they want defense spending now. And so that's the, the cromnibus side of this, and what we're hearing from some Republicans is, let's do a short-term continuing resolution for non-defense discretionary spending, but let's do an omnibus for defense spending so that the de defense spending for the rest of the fiscal year is figured out, and we'll go ahead and take care of the non-defense side of the ledger once we get back and when we're in the once this continuing resolution expires. 
you can imagine why Democrats would not really love that idea, because they'll lose the negotiating ploy of, um, you know, parity in terms of, you know, how much defense and non-defense gets and kind of those balancing issues. And so that's something that we're going to have to watch and take care of. You know, it seems likely that a continuing resolution will be passed next week. I don't think that there's a government shutdown in the offering. Uh, Senator Mitch McConnell yesterday said that he will not be shutting down the government. I know Paul Ryan doesn't want to see that happen. I know Republicans don't want to have a government shutdown because they control all branches of government right, right. now, and that would look really bad to shut down the government. Um, and I also don't think Democrats want to shut down the government right before Christmas either. And I they, believe Pelosi and Schumer have both been on record saying that they don't want to shut the government down. So Yeah, so there's yeah. there's enough interest to get this taken care of. The question is, is it going to be a cromnibus or is it going to be another continuing resolution and how long that goes? Uh, Daniel. Um, so I have a question. So it, lo- it looks like Trump signed authorization bill for um, the defense spending. But doesn't he still, and the Republicans still need Democrats to vote to uh, raise the budget caps because that $700 billion is above the enacted caps that were put in in 2011. So doesn't see, don't they still need to work together? Oh, Daniel. So, <laughs> so young and naive. <laughs> um, yeah, so there are, in the budgeting process, there are authorizing bills and there are appropriating bills. Authorizing bills is a, is a wish list. And as a, I would like to have X hundred billion dollars for these programs or for this this department, um, they carry no. There's no teeth to it, right? Appropriators can and often do ignore authorizing language. And the perfect example for that is the America Competes Act, which was something that was passed several times earlier this decade, um, which promised to double federal investments in R and D funding at federal agencies. It was authorized to double, you know, National Science Foundation, Department of Energy, a bunch of programs that were within uh, the competes legislation. The appropriations bills never followed through with that. So, um, yes, but yes, to your point, th- there is work that needs to happen there, and that's maybe a nice transition to let, let's just put let's put the CR issue to bed for a second, which is to say they need to. We don't want a government shutdown on December twenty second. Um, it's likely that it's not going to happen. We're going to be watching it. So again, watch the blog. Now is a great time. Policy.asbmb.org. It's a great time to sign up so that you'll be a, a subscriber and get the emails when we update things. Um, but that's something that we're going to be watching to see if there is a CR and how long the CR goes until. I would I would venture to guess the CR is going to go until like late January and give Congress a month and the holiday season to figure out what to do. I would think maybe March. March. I would think they would do three months. But you're also getting the fiscal conservatives to not want to have a long CR. So maybe, I would I would say probably end of yeah, but We've January. had fiscal, fiscal conservatives for the last however long, and they've pushed it down three months. They've done three-month CRs. These are the same fiscal conservatives that are supporting a tax bill that will increase our debt and deficit by right. one and a half trillion dollars over ten years. So it's really hard to measure what people <laughs> right. are going to do moving forward. Um, I do believe... Senator Rand Paul has said he would not support what was it? He said he won't vote for a budget busting spending bill according to a video on Twitter that he posted. However, he's going to vote for the tax reform bill which will add a trillion dollars to the deficit. But that's fine. Yeah, (laughs) We'll figure that out. We'll work through that. Um, You know, this is a good so that's that's taking care of the current fiscal year um, fiscal year 18 which is what we're 
three months into now. Um, there are other discussions that are happening too, which is raising the discretionary cap. So quick, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week with Matt Hurahan. So go back to last week's podcast, download it on iTunes, SoundCloud. What's the other website? Stitcher. Stitcher. I don't know what that is, but go to Stitcher, download <laughs> it there too. Um, or go to our blog, policy.isbnb.org. Um, we talked about it with Matt Hurahan and what caps, you know, what the discretionary caps are, how they limit spending when they came into effect uh, in the early 2010s um, as a response to debt and deficit problems. There is a plan in place, or at least the outline of a plan in place, to raise both defense and non-defense discretionary caps for both fiscal year 2018 and fiscal year 2019. Um, the, the rough outline of the plan would be a $54 billion increase for the caps uh, in, in defense and a $37 billion increase in the caps in non-defense for both um, 2017, uh, for both 2018 and 2019's fiscal years. Um, that would raise the caps from, so in fiscal year 18, sorry, these are numbers, I apologize. Um, that would raise defense spending, the pot of money that they have for the Department of Defense from $549 billion for fiscal year 18 to $603 billion. And for non-defense, it would raise the cap from $516 billion to $553 billion. Um, raising the caps is critically important for programs like the NIH and the NSF and you know the programs that a lot of us care about here. And the reason for that is, let's look at the NIH. Over the past three years, the NIH has seen a $2 billion increase to its budget. Those increases are impossible to happen without there having been increases in the caps, which is why ASBNB is really involved in, I'm a, uh, a national co-chair of NDD United, which is a group that is call, has been calling historically for years now for Congress to raise the caps, and that's why it's a really critically important thing. Um, that we don't get the increases that the appropriations bills would like to give us without increases in the caps. It would bust the caps, it would cause an automatic cut, which is the sequester, it would cause lots of bad things. The issue is how there seems to, there is certainly an interest, Republicans would like to see the defense cap exploded. Um, the White House would like to see defense spending up around, I think, $700 billion. You mentioned it in the mm -hmm. authorization, right? Is that, do you know what the authorization level was? It's right around $696 billion. So that's like uh, hundreds of billions of dollars over what the current cap is. Well, $65 billion of that would be un under the overseas contingency operations, which I don't think is under the cap. It's not under the cap. That's yeah. okay. So it's, it's now at $626 billion. Yeah. Okay, so it would be like an $80 billion increase. Yeah. So, Just, so <laughs> the position that Democrats take is, um, and this is it's called the parity principle, which is for every dollar that you increase defense spending, Democrats are fine with, provided there is an equal increase to non-defense spending. Um, this way, the programs that, you know, uh, uh, let's call, you know, a liberal Democrat might care more about, say, social service programs than they might care about defense spending. Um, this way, all of these things are, ri are raised equally. The plan that was proposed, um, the Republican plan that was proposed is close to parity. It's $54 billion and $37 billion, so it's not quite dollar for dollar. It's not bad, though. I mean, an increase, any increase that we can see is good, and we're likely, you know, the life sciences are likely to see a boost from that. However, it's not that, you know, dollar-for-dollar dollar parity. We've seen Democrats respond to the proposal by saying, let's increase both defense and non-defense by $54 billion. You know, that's what you want to increase, increase mm -hmm. defense by. Let's see it both happen. Um, 
I don't know if that's going to happen. I just don't know if there's going to be the will for that. And frankly, I don't know if Democrats are going to walk away from the negotiating table and leave the $37 billion on the table. Right. Republicans have never, I mean, in our meetings on the Hill, they they are not interested in parity. So the fact that they're even discussing increases for NDD is at least try to meet them somewhere halfway. I know Democrats may feel that they are constantly compromising, but a compromise is not a loss. Daniel, any thoughts? No, I agree. I think it would be a good boon to a lot of the programs that um, Democrats care about. Yeah, and so a lot of this, particularly the 2018 cap, needs to be worked out before you can have a long uh, a spending, you know, an omnibus spending bill for fiscal year 18. So, like, these things are just tied into each other in a really kind of twisted, weird way. Um, this is why groups like ours and lobbyists all throughout the city have said, um, let's get back to regular order which is, you know, when appropriations bills are launched in the spring and there are hearings in the summer and they're passed in the fall and there's like an actual flow to things instead of um, continuing resolution to continuing resolution to omnibus to chromnibus to whatever mibus it is. <laughs> because um, we know continuing resolutions are bad for science. That's right, and that's a great point. You know, and we, we did this, and we'll put a link to... Um, ASBNB, uh, policy.asbnb.org. We did a hearing on Capitol Hill a year ago where we talked about the impact that continuing resolutions have on science. And so right. if you're an NIH-funded investigator, when we enter a continuing resolution, the NIH shaves a little bit of your grant off the top because the NIH doesn't know what their budget is going to be for next year. So I think that all uh, NIH-funded investigators right now are dealing with 90% of their funding instead of 100% of their funding because the NIH is holding back 10% to make sure that they can fund more down the road after the continuing resolution, you know, wherever we are. Right, and other agencies decide not to fund programs at all. So if there's a CR, then you, then they are not authorized to create new programs for new research initiatives, for new research to be funded. So it kind of has this windfall effect where everybody's getting less or not getting anything at all. So, so there's... Um, there's a lot of work that still needs to get done uh, this year. We need to, um, certainly congressional leadership wants to pass a tax reform bill, what it's going to look like, whether it's just some kind of like outline of a shell of a tax reform bill that gets to the president's desk before Christmas. I don't know. They want to get that done. They need to do something to avoid a government shutdown in the next week or so. Um, so there is a lot of work that still needs to get done. There's a lot of things to watch. And a lot of it is going to be setting the stages for the battles that are going to come in 2018, which, by the way, is an election year, which leaves Congress doesn't get a lot of work done in the summer and the fall of an election year. So it's going to start getting really complicated. And Donald Trump still wants his wall money. He hasn't gotten any of that yet. There are promises that are going to be brought up during the campaign in 2018. So things are messy. Things are complicated. We've got you covered. If you have questions, you can reach us uh, on Twitter, hashtag politics. Thank you for listening. We're going to take a break, and we'll be closing it out right after this. Like this but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB Policy blog, where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org.
Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. This is Ben. This is Andrew. This is Daniel. So uh, this is going to be our last episode for the year, barring some major thing that we decide to throw something together. Um, so we wanted to take a look back, and uh, I asked both Andre and Daniel to tell me what their science story of 2017 was. And so, Daniel, what do you think the story of the year was? Well, besides my graduating and getting a PhD, which I think it's a pretty big deal, um, <laughs> my favorite science story of the year would definitely be the solar eclipse. And I think that event really got people to fall in love with science. Um, many people became, what is it, like solar eclipse hunters. Uh, and people really then got that appreciation for how important it is for us to continue to fund science. And... Um, yeah, I think that was just a, such a great event for us to have. It also gave us the world's best image, which is the president on the porch. <laughs> yeah, e- even the glasses, even was, affected politics. So. Yeah, that was classic. Um, that was good. It certainly people became very educated. Yeah. Um, I became an expert on, on how to look at a solar eclipse through a pinhole on a piece of paper, right. which was amazing. And nobody got blinded by it, which was actually a really great well, public health well. <laughs> like, uh, policy or that's because campaign that we very difficult. They were being very <laughs> alarmist about it, but whatever. Uh, Andre, story, <laughs> story of the year. All right. I don't know if this is story of the year, but I'm a big sci-fi, astrobiology kind of nerd. guy. Nerd. I was going to use nerd. I was going to say enthusiast. <laughs> nerd. <laughs> um, this year, we detected for the first time a interstellar object flying through the, flying through the solar system. It's shaped like a cigar. It's called Ua Ma Ua. It's a Hawaiian term. If I said it wrong, I'm sorry. But the idea is that because of its shape and because it's interstellar, maybe it was sent by aliens. Yes. <laughs> ben does not it's agree. A, not <laughs> He's looking at his phone. It's not a big science <laughs> article, but I think it's. I mean, interstellar objects we don't detect them very often. Space is huge, whatever. But to find something so particular running through the running through our solar system, it's just great. It's like the gravitational waves. They've probably been going on forever. We're finally detecting them. I'm for it. I know it probably has nothing to do with aliens. It's probably just some rock that's spinned <laughs> off in space. But it, it made headlines, and I thought it was pretty interesting. We're, we're going to move on from there. <laughs> um, for me, the, the story of the year, I think, is um, the March for Science. Um, I think it's scientists standing up and um, everyone's shaking their heads. I'm sorry, but it's true. As a science policy advocate, you know, the thing that we are constantly dealing with is trying to get scientists more involved in having their voice heard and being included in the conversation, getting out of their nervous shell and being kind of an active participant. There's a good chance if you're listening to this, you're already someone that was doing that, um, but you have a colleague who hasn't been. So nudge them, tell them to listen to this, tell them to get more involved. Um, But what we've seen is more activity. And I think, you know, without that happening uh, earlier in the spring, maybe you don't have as much of a push from the graduate student community against the grad student tax issue. Um, you know, you don't have CNN, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, like all these mainstream media outlets talking specifically about that particular issue. Um, you know, it opened the door for lots of things. And I think it's, it's a position the scientific community to be more active going forward politically. And this is a really critical time, and not just because of politics, but because science is damn exciting, and we're on the verge of lots of really, truly amazing things. And um, 
we need the support to make those things happen. And I'm really hopeful that that, that happens. And so that was me going out as a Pollyanna for the year um, and being positive about things, which is a rarity for me. So um, with that, uh, on behalf of Daniel and Andre and me, I want to thank you for listening, for downloading, uh, for contributing. Um, you can reach us all on Twitter at BWCorb. At AMPorter underscore. At DFAM20. Uh, or at ASBNB, also hashtag Pipettes and Politics. Thank you for listening. Have uh, happy and safe holidays and a happy new year, and we will talk to you in 2018. Thank you for listening. <laughs>